Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the companion podcast to our Read the Bible in a Year plan. Due to a recent and awful tragedy, Pastor Ben is not here this week, but our prayers are with him. Our readings this week are the entire book of Lamentations and Obadiah. We have like five verses from 2 Kings 25. We're going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 40 through 44, and then a few verses later in the book. We're going to be reading from Ezekiel 32 to 39, and then Psalm 137. Now, our readings this week are dealing with the aftermath of the exile. It's just been, it's just so difficult, I think, for us to imagine what this experience must have been like. Pastor Ben did a really good job of talking about this last week, but it's, it's a national disaster when so many of the people thought that a national disaster like this was impossible. We haven't really talked about this, but there was a, a type of belief among the Jews in Zion, right? And Zion is the word for either Jerusalem or the Temple Mount that we see often in Scripture. And a lot of Jews had belief in Zion rather than in their in Yahweh through the covenant. So basically what this looked like was they had this idea that because Judah was made up of God's like chosen people, then so long as they trusted that he would protect them, he would. So it, they had to trust in his desire to protect his people rather than obey the covenant and follow him faithfully. Now, this wasn't all Jewish people in anything like that, but it was a very common belief. Now, this is explicitly contrary to the covenant. This is one of the reasons why we see them do things like worship other gods and not be afraid because of it. And so, as we've said over and over again, in the covenant, in the book of Deuteronomy, are a set of blessings and curses. And if God's people will obey the covenant, they're going to be blessed. But if they break the covenant, they're going to be cursed. And so for many of God's people who had this sort of wayward belief in Zion, the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem felt like God had broken his word and abandoned them. And so their hearts were primed for a form of worship that we call lament. Now, tradition tells us that the prophet Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations to give voice to the hurt and shock and outrage and sadness among all of God's people at the loss of Jerusalem at the destruction of the temple, and at the exile. And so, whereas Job is a book that deals with individual suffering, Lamentations is a book that deals with the problem of national suffering. The whole people are suffering, and Lamentations sort of takes up that theme and talks about it. And so if you've been listening, you've heard this a lot already, a lot of this background, but I want to give you some more background here. Now, a lot of our readings today are going to make a lot more sense if we do this, if we talk about the background, if we look into the history and historical context around our passages. Now, at the beginning, I need to ask you to forgive me. Um, Bible background and history is a passion of mine, but I haven't had time this week to check everything I'm going to say to make sure that every detail is exactly right. So um, a lot of this is from the Bible, so I'm very confident about it, but some of this is from my memory of outside historical sources. And so, if, like I said, I'm pretty confident, but if I get some dates wrong or some names or details wrongs, wrong, just, just know that I warned you and let me know because I'll make a correction. So in 587 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, Judah has had nothing but trouble for like two decades. The good King Josiah, he was killed in battle some 20 years earlier. And then after he dies... 
Judah loses her independence, and it just sort of begins this downward spiral. Now, the Egyptians, they remove Josiah's son, and they put Jehoiakim in his place as like their puppet. And he reigns for 11 years. But, but during that time, Babylon rose to power and defeats Egypt, and Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon right around 600 B.C. This was the people strong enough to take on Egypt, but he thought, we can stop them. So he, he rebels. And in response to that, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was rapidly becoming the most powerful ruler in the world, he personally came to Judah to put down the rebellion. And Jehoiakim died right around that time. And so his son, Jehoiachin, got taken to Babylon for something like 37 years. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he took thousands of important Israelites with him to Babylon, and he put a puppet ruler, Zedekiah, on the throne. Now, these exiles to Babylon, they happened repeatedly. Pastor Ben talked about this last week, and we see the specifics in our Jeremiah readings today. Now, Zedekiah was a weak king, and his advisors were able to get him, against, against Jeremiah's advice, to also rebel against Babylon. So he saw how well it went before, so he rebels. And this is that Zion belief that we're talking about, right? That nothing bad can happen to them because they're God's chosen people. So if they rebel against all odds, they're still going to win. And Jeremiah is telling them that's not the case. Jeremiah, who would have been like 60 here, he's telling them Yahweh wants Judah to submit to Babylon. Yahweh is using Babylon as a tool. You need to submit. That was an unpopular message. People generally don't like being told to submit. I think most Americans can, can understand that, even though that is something that we're supposed to be good at doing. But Zedekiah, he doesn't listen to Jeremiah. He listens to his advisors and he rebels. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he comes back to Judah and he was furious. He spent two years completely dismantling and destroying what was left of Judah. There's some fascinating historical references to like watchmen in Jerusalem talking about their outpost cities. So they had these, these military installations in place in two cities. I think it's like Azika and Lachish. And there's, there's, we found documents like of people writing notes that needed to be taken to, to an officer in charge. Like the lights have gone out of Azika, meaning that Babylon has taken that city down. And then afterwards, they take Lachish, and then after that, they come for Jerusalem. And things inside of Jerusalem in that time got very, very bad. But then as he destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, he carries off the educated, the wealthy, and the influential Israelites who were left into exile. And so God's chosen people are now in complete devastation and in complete despair. And that is the atmosphere that Lamentations was written in. It speaks to a time of crisis and destruction. It, uh, it speaks to the loss of God's favor, the loss of their temple and their king and their land. And Lamentations is an acrostic. So each chapter has 22 letters, um, with the exception of chapter 3, which has 3 times 22. It has 66. And the reason for that is each verse corresponds to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so verse 1 of each chapter, again except for 3, begins with an aleph, which is the Hebrew A. And then verse 2 is with a bet, and that's, that's their B, and then gimel and dalet, all the way down to tau, which is the, the 22nd and last letter of their alphabet. 
It's this acrostic that it's written in. And it's meant to say, I think, that it's talking about this subject from A to Z. Like it's, it's covering the subject of loss and sadness in, 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 of Jerusalem. Now, the, each five of the chapters is a poem. And each chapter, each poem is a little bit different. And so the first poem, I want to I kind of tell you these because if you don't know what's going on, you can kind of be taken aback or surprised by the points of view shifting. So the first poem is Jerusalem speaking. And first in the third person and then in the first person. It's mourning its destruction. It, Jerusalem is, is weeping and sad because of what's happened to it. And then the second poem is Jeremiah describing God's wrath against Jerusalem. So the second poem is Jeremiah explaining God's wrath in this whole, like with their their rebellion and all of it. We're going to talk about the third poem in a minute. But the fourth poem describes the, the people before the fall of Jerusalem and just how awful it was. And it lays blame at the false prophets and priests, right? And then the fifth poem describes the exiles, and it appeals to God for restoration. And we skip the third poem, because remember, it's three times as long as the others. And so that's telling us that it's like the focus of the poem. It's where we're supposed to get the core message from. And the thing about that is that third poem is Judah, the kingdom, being personified and and speaking about the mercy of God. There's hope in the third poem. There's not much hope in the others, but there's hope there. That one day God's going to relent and that he's going to, he's going to take care of them again. And so there's a couple of verses in Lamentations 3 that I feel like sort of um, just encapsulate this and kind of show us the heart of the book of Lamentations. I want to open those real quick. Are Lamentations chapter 3 verses 31 through 33 and they read this way. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. And so here we get that hope, right? We get that promise of something else that will happen. In the future, God's wrath will be poured out. It will be exhausted. And he will show compassion and come back to his people once again. So that's the book of Lamentations. Now, I want us to turn to the book of Obadiah. Uh, It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. And so me telling you about it is probably going to take longer than you reading it. But it's good to know some of the background here. Obadiah is the name of a prophet who's preaching sometime after the fall of Jerusalem. And so there are a lot of Obadiahs in the Bible between Obadiah and its shortened version, Obed, That's like the difference between Jonathan and John or Nicholas and Nick. There's like 17 of them in the Bible. And so if you're thinking of an Obadiah from a story, this is not that Obadiah. This is a prophet who we know nothing about other than the book that we have of his. And this book is entirely a prophecy against Edom. Now, Edom has had a rough history with Israel. In Genesis, Esau moved to Edom before Jacob returns from Haran, and his descendants just sort of inhabitate that area. And then in Numbers, um, the Edomites, they refused to let the Israelites cross their land after they're fleeing from Egypt, after, their, after the Exodus. 
And then Saul and David, they both have battles with the Edomites. And later on, Edom joins with some other nations and does raids on Judah. And then as we move through Kings and Chronicles, we start to find out that that this relationship just became very tumultuous. Judah eventually conquers Edom, and then Edom gets independence, and then Judah conquers them again, and Edom gets independence again, and even like carries off a bunch of captives from Judah. And so that's the, the relationship that goes back and forth. But eventually Edom it submits to Assyria. And during that time, they stop fighting and develop a, a friendly relationship. I mean, they're, they're not... I don't know if they would actually be allies, but, you know, they're distant cousins because of the Jacob and Esau story. And so they, there was peace between them. And so then as Judah's on the verge of collapse, Edom actively works against them. And so this rival cousin of Judah's became one of the instruments of their destruction. And fair or not, there was a lot of rage over that. And yeah, well, I say it is fair because Yahweh is the one who speaks these prophecies against Edom. Now, later on, Edom falls in the like 5th century BC or so, and a lot of them flee to Judah. And King Herod, whom you know from the New Testament, he's part Edomite. So that's the history of Israel and Judah. Now, Obadiah of Edom and Judah. Now, Obadiah, he's not the only prophet who condemns Edom, but he's the only one who condemns only Edom. We hear about Edom in Isaiah and I think in Jeremiah, I mean, in Lamentations, definitely. In Ezekiel, um, I think Joel, we're going to hear it. And and I think we heard about Edom, maybe in Amos. Um, but he's it's covered in a lot of prophets. Yeah, Amos, definitely. And Obadiah's theme is that nations, whole nations are responsible to God for how they treat others. And so there's this, this kind of verse here in the, the tail end of it. Verse 15 There's only 21 verses in Obadiah. Verse 15 says this, As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And so again, it's this idea, he's speaking to the nation there, that nations are um, guilty for the sins they've committed against other nations. Now, we see in the Old Testament, this change has been happening. We see it in Ezekiel, we see it in Jeremiah, where Yahweh is really starting to focus more on the individual than on the group. Right, And so we see in both of them that you'll be punished for your own sin rather than the sin as a whole. But we see also with what's happening to Judah because of the breaking of the covenant that sometimes the group is still what gets punished. And so one of the things Obadiah is saying is this nation, Edom, has, has worked against God's people, has, has actively worked against them in their hour of greatest need, and punishment is coming for Edom. Because of that. Now, the individuals within Edom may receive blessing or may even be in the covenant, but the nation as a whole is going to be judged because of what the nation as a whole has done. Now, this is important for us today. I really wrestled with whether or not to say this. Pastor Ben is usually here to keep me from saying things like this, but the, the, a lot of our political tensions and struggles today are over America's just issues in the past and what we have done. And so I think that there, there tends to be this idea that since we weren't around, that, you know, some of the worst things that have been done to, um, in American history, I think about what happened to first Americans or Native Americans. I think about what happened with the slave trade. You and I were not there for those things. We did not do those things. But 
First of all, America is still in like active violation of some treaties today, and that's not good uh, with uh, the first Americans. But there are a lot of ways that our nation has never repented of those things. You know, I think even a formal repentance has taken a very long time for one of those things and not ever come for the other. And one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that that guilt stains our country. I, I am a, I'm a patriot. I believe, I really do, that America is the greatest country in the world. I would not choose anywhere else to live. And I, I, because I love America, I, I want it to be the best it can be. And one of the things that we need to do in the here and now as a country is repent of the awful things that have been in our past. And Obadiah gives us that message. It tells us that our nation as a whole needs to repent for what our nation has done in the past. We do not want to be like Edom, right, who's done a terrible thing against a nation and, and thinks we get away with it. We, we want to be righteous and we want to repent of wrongdoing. Now, our second Kings readings, they just tell a brief version of the story that we get in the, a longer version of in the Jeremiah readings, the story of Gedaliah. So Gedaliah is an amazing character in scripture who doesn't get enough attention because his story is cut short even though I think that he was just such a promising figure. So after the final exile, the Babylonians, they put this man, Gedaliah, in charge as governor over the land. So he's not king, but he's governor in charge of it. And they put him in charge of the people who are left. So they've taken all of the wealthy and influential Israelites. What are left are are the poor and soldiers. And Gedaliah, he seems to be a righteous man, and his leadership is really promising. And so the officers of Judah's army, they come to him and, and he tells them, don't be afraid to serve the Babylonians. This is what Yahweh has given to us, so we're going to endure it. This is what's happened because we violated the covenant and this is Yahweh's will, so we're going we're gonna to do what he wants, which is refreshing to see from a ruler in, in um, Judah. And his message to them was to let life return to normal. And so when Jews who'd scattered heard that there was a remnant left, and that this man, Gedaliah, who'd been, had been put in charge, they came back. And it really seems like things went okay for a while. And then one of the army leaders comes to Gedaliah and says, Hey, there's this man named Ishmael, and he's an assassin who's planning to kill you. Let me take care of him. But Gedaliah, he doesn't believe it. And so a little while later, while they're sharing a meal, Ishmael does exactly what the army leader said he would. He kills Gedaliah. And all of his men and all of the Babylonians are killed too, that were left there. So all of, all of Gedaliah's men and then the Babylonians that were left kind of keeping watch and, and making sure that Gedaliah does what he's supposed to, um, Ishmael kills them all. And so we find out that Ishmael is a descendant from David. And so it seems like he thought that being Judah's ruler was like his birthright and, and he took it by force. We see here a foreshadowing of, I think, of Judas in the New Testament. One of, the, one of the arguments about Judas, because his, his, his actions just don't really make sense in the story, but it seems like he misunderstood what the kingdom that Jesus was bringing about was and really thought that a forced confrontation between Jesus and the, the ruling like parties, the, the Roman army, would 
cause the revolution that he was waiting for. And so it doesn't, I mean, he may have been just a turncoat who wanted to hurt Jesus and have him taken away, but it really might be that he thought he just needed to force what, what he knew God's will to be. And even if really bad things happened, and even if he got rich from doing that, then that was okay. We see some of that in Ishmael. He believes that since God had promised, since Yahweh had promised that David would always have a descendant on the throne, and he's a descendant of David, that he just had to force God's will to come about because he was so sure what that was. And that's also a warning to us personally. When you're, when you're certain you know God's will, man, you need to check with the people around you. Um, let the Holy Spirit speak into it because sometimes you do harm. Hopefully not harm like Ishmael does. So um, Ishmael, he, a bunch of people come to bring offerings to Yahweh. And they come to where Ishmael is at, and he traps them, and he kills them. And then he made captives of all the rest of the people. And so the army men who'd come to Gedaliah at the beginning of all this, they heard about what had happened, and they marched for Ishmael. So Ishmael takes everyone that he can, and he tries to flee to the land of um, the Ammonites, I think. Yeah, the Ammonites. And the people that he was taking with him, once the army like approaches... They just leave. They run for the military men because they trust them. They don't want to be with Ishmael. They're just afraid of him. And so they leave. And then Ishmael and a few of his men escape, which is not a satisfying conclusion to that story. But now the army men, they, they want to take this massive group of people they have to Egypt. They want to flee because they're sure that when the Babylonians hear that Gedaliah has been killed, the one they put as a, as a governor, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be furious again. They're worried that he's going to come down and destroy and kill everyone that's left. He's going to see this as an act of defiance on their part. Because this is just such a small part of the world, and it had given him so much trouble. I mean, this wasn't an irrational belief. And so um, they go to Jeremiah, and they say, Jeremiah, prophet, give us guidance about what we should do. And we vow that whatever you tell us to do, we're going to do. And so Jeremiah says, stay put and don't be afraid of the Babylonians. Yahweh, he's going to give you success in the land. He's going to watch over you. If you go to Egypt like you want to, then everything you're afraid of happening by the Babylonians or if you stay here, all those things, they're not going to happen if you stay here like Yahweh wants you to, but they are going to happen if you go to Egypt because Yahweh doesn't want you to do that and you'll be judged for disobeying him if you do. And there's these army men who had been heroic in their saving the people from Ishmael. But they, they turn in that moment and they call Jeremiah a liar. And they say that he wants to get them killed. That Baruch, who's his scribe, is setting them up or something. And so they kidnap Jeremiah in a bizarre turn and they take him with them. And we see some of the, just the, the wild defiance. In, in some passages here. So in verse 44, chapter 15 and following, we, we hear them say, we're going to pour out offerings to the queen of heaven because things were going well when we did that before. So Jeremiah tells them to stop giving offerings to idols. And they say, no, we're going to keep doing that because when we did that before, everything was going well. That's because there's this cycle in Israel's history where where things go badly and they repent. But then as things get better, they start to stumble, right? And they start to they start to give in to idolatry and then things go badly for them again. And so 
in a bizarre like memory of events, they think that what went bad or what made things go well was the idolatry. And when they stopped doing that, that's when things went badly again. And so that the the queen of heaven that they're talking about there is the goddess Ishtar. And she's, I think we've talked about this before. She's a goddess of fertility and like carnal love. And so um, families could get involved in her worship by making cakes for her. We actually see that talked about in the text. And um, couples could get involved by doing other things. And so they like to see Yahweh and Ishtar as like a married couple. She's the queen of heaven. He's the king of heaven. Obviously, Yahweh is not okay with this. And Jeremiah calls them on it, but they say, we're going we're gonna to do that anyway. And Yahweh says, fine, uh, I'm watching over you in Egypt, but I'm watching over you for harm and not for good, which is chilling to the bone. And see, the power, the, the people see God's power. The problem here, I think, is that the people see God's power as like a force to enlist, they see Yahweh as a thing they have to invoke or get on their side. This idea that we saw in Babylon, that you could control the, the gods somehow. They have it. And, and so God is this power they have to like invoke or put on their side. He's not a Lord that they have to obey. And so when his will is different than their own, they do not understand it. They're seeing Yahweh as a tool and cannot fathom that his will might be different than theirs. If there's anything that could speak to us today, it's this. Because we, we struggle so much with this exact issue in seeing Yahweh's will must be the same as our will. If we like a thing, we call it good. And if we don't like a thing, we call it bad. And even among churches, Christian churches, believers, there's just these very different thoughts and focuses on on what Yahweh, the king of the universe, says and thinks and wants. And I think that one of the reasons for that, there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the reasons for that is we have this sickness, this need to believe that, that Yahweh is something for us to call on, to invoke, that he's, he's there for us. And so his, if his will is different than ours, then that just doesn't make sense. And it's because we see him as a power to invoke, not a, a Lord to obey. And so Jeremiah's life ends there. Um, not in the land given by Yahweh to his people, but in the land of false gods and false promises. And so there's a, a couple of interesting tidbits here. Babylon finally does invade Egypt um, in like 565 or, or something like that B.C., and there's Egyptian and Babylonian fragments that talk about a camp of Israelites near the Nile in the decades after the invasion. And so I, I think the Babylons, the Babylon sources like describe their religious practices, worshiping a king and queen of the gods, which would be Yahweh and Ishtar. And I think the Egyptian documents describe their destruction and like people being very excited for that. They were not a popular people at that time. But as you're reading these vast passages in Jeremiah, and, and the people just seem so shockingly willing to disobey Yahweh. We should let that go to our heart because so often we'd become so sure that what we want or what we believe is right. And then we go to the Bible and we find proof, right? So we start with our belief and then we find proof in the Bible. 
and we try to make it say or, or, or invoke the name of Yahweh for our cause. And that's wrong. Um, we need to go to the Bible to, to take in what it says in its whole context and let it form our beliefs and not the other way around. And the other problem with this is it, if, if you have a belief like this, then you're not going to know what to do when bad things happen. I mean, we saw the Jewish people struggle with that. That's why Lamentations was written. But we as people have to understand that Yahweh's not ours to, to send or to invoke or to claim on and, and make obey us. We're his. And so any idea that, you know, if we're just good enough or if we're, we follow him rightly or we, we do all the things he tells us to, that means we're going to get all these other things that we want. That's just not the way that, that worshiping Yahweh works. And if our, live, our lives are easy, then that is a blessing. But all of us are going to deal with hardship and tragedy at some point, and we have to be prepared for that. We have, one of the ways that we prepare for that is seeing our relationship with Yahweh for what it is. He is our Lord. We are not his. And then the last part of our readings today is from Psalm 137. And Psalm 137 is just nine verses. And I kept wondering why in the Psalm readings we didn't, we hadn't read it yet. And this is why, because it was saved for here, because it's, it's talking about the, the exile. And, um, you can hear the grief and the sadness in this, but what I, what I want to do quickly is I want to zero in on the last few verses because they're the ones that are best known. So I'm going to read 7, 8, and 9. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, one of the things that's hard, this verse gets used a lot to say, like, how could that be in the Bible? Happy is the one who takes babies and dashes them against the rocks. And we're even uncomfortable with it when it happens. And we've talked about this verse a few times in weeks past, but the context here is really important. One of the things that's happening is it's saying that this is what's happened to the Israelites, right? The, the Babylonians, the Edomites, they have destroyed Israel as though they had taken their children and beaten them against the rocks. And it's wishing for what happened to them, to Israel, to happen to Edom and Babylon, right? We saw that in Obadiah, this, this you get, you reap what you sow. And so the Israelites are saying, what's been done to us, we hope it's done to you. Now, that may still be tough for us to wrestle with in the, um, the tone or the tone of that is hard and painful. We might feel like that doesn't belong in the Bible that is written by a God of love. But one of the things we have to understand is that we have never been in the position of, of these people, who this remnant or the people that were sent into exile. We've never been an oppressed people under cruel oppressors. And one of the things that is common in the literature that comes out of peoples in those situations is a cry for retributive justice. What is done to us by you, we can't wait to see it done to you. And because that will be justice. We can't wait to see justice done. And so what Psalm 137 is crying out for is, is justice. It's not saying 
I really hope someone takes your baby and beats them against the rock. That's that's not what it's saying. It's it's crying out because of what's been done to them and hoping for justice on the ones who did this to them. Well, those are our readings for the coming week, um, especially at the end. I know that got heavy, um, but I hope that obviously these are better when Pastor Ben is here. Uh, he is missed. But um, I hope that the kind of the history in the background was helpful as you get ready for the readings. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Also, did anyone hear what Ben did at the end of last week's? Like he changed his voice when he said, stay hung. He made me sound like this. I'm not sure what to think of that, but Pastor Ben and I may need to have a conversation. Anyway, stay hungry.